You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. morning. We are uh, plugging away a few more uh, chunks of the book of Exodus. We're, we're studying. This is our second to last sermon in the book of Exodus. Um, so if you're just joining us partway through, welcome. Um, we've kind of taken this fall a, a 10,000 foot view of, if you will, of Exodus in, in large pieces. We haven't gone as deep as we, ca- as we could have. We haven't uh, exhausted the ideas found in the text as much as we could have. Partly because Exodus is so rich, it would take months upon months upon months to really plumb the depths, if you will, of all that's here. But also because one of our goals of preaching here at River City is to help you, set the, we set the table, so to speak, so that you, as followers of Jesus, are able to then feast on the Word as you read it yourselves. So to use a Thanksgiving analogy, which we are all looking forward to, because food, um, we want to set the table with God's Word here, so that when you sit down day in and day out, as you open God's Word yourselves, you're able to, to fill your plate with the richness of what God's Word has for His people. So, to help set the table for this series, I've encouraged us to consider each week kind of three questions. Every time we come to Exodus on Sunday mornings, every time you open it up during the week to read, asking these questions as we approach the text. What is Exodus telling us about who God is? What is Exodus telling us about what it means to belong to Him as His people? And what is Exodus showing us about God's plan of redemption? Where do we see in Exodus the the shape, the arc, the story of redemption? And I want us to keep those things in mind today as we work through our our couple of chapters and as we go from here into this next week in your own reading. Um, Each week we've pulled out a handful of chapters um, and, and focused primarily on one aspect that God is revealing himself uh, that God is revealing himself to be in Exodus. Um, so you can grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 32. Today we're only going to cover three chapters, but I'm not sure you'll be able to tell by the amount of words that I have already penned. Um, Exodus chapter 32. If you need a Bible, you can slip your hands up. That was a joke, by the way. Um, you can slip your hands up and some folks will be coming around. You're like, Jake, don't give the long sermon jokes. This is not, this is not the time for that. Um, Exodus chapter 32 is where we're going to be. Um, and if you need a Bible, some folks are coming around. Uh, we're only going to look at uh, ch- chapters 32 through 34 today. And, and in this section, in these chapters, I think we're seeing God reveal himself in this way. I am your God who remains faithful. That's the revelation that God is giving of himself to his people in our section of text today. I am your God who remains faithful. So we're going to get in and read a couple of these texts to kind of set the stage and then work our way back through. Let's start in Exodus chapter 32. We'll read verses 1 through 14 to start, and then we'll keep going. So uh, Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord for us today. I invite you to follow along. 
When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who should go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Verse 11, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, And relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster they had spoken of bringing on his people. Our second chunk of reading will be from Exodus 34. So turn there, just 10 more verses. Exodus 34, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on the mount on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Verse 10. He said, Behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such have such as not has excuse me, 
such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among who you are shall see the works of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing I will do with you. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Now, I read these two longer sections because I think they bookend the faithfulness of God. I am your God who remains faithful. After all God has done to prove himself, God's people would respond to his faithfulness with unfaithfulness. Faithfulness correlates to things like trust and loyalty and constancy and devotion and truth. And so the opposite is unfaithfulness. And that correlates to things like distrust, disloyalty, inconstancy, dishonesty, and my favorite word I found in relationship, treachery. Right? And I think we can identify faithfulness and unfaithfulness when we see it, when we experience it. Here's a very low-level, entry-level example. There's a terminology called a fair-weather fan, right? When your preferred sports team is winning, you are in. And when they stink it up, they are a terrible team with terrible owners in a terrible city with a terrible fan base, right? So let's go root for someone else. Now, at a deeper, far more significant level, we feel it in our own relationships, right? We've experienced the joy of faithful relationship and the pain of unfaithful ones. A faithful friend is someone who sticks around even when everyone else leaves. A faithful friend is someone who, for the sake of your soul, lovingly tells you things you need to hear. A faithful Excuse me, an unfaithful friend is absent, either in their presence or absent in their counsel, not loving you enough to speak the truth in love or abandoning you, right? Unfaithfulness breaks relationship. That's the problem we see here in our section of text. Unfaithfulness is what causes the break in relationship. If you pull, I think if you pull the string of any broken relationship, you will find unfaithfulness somewhere in the mix. And that's the problem here. God's people, despite God's kindness, have been unfaithful. Unfaithfulness breaks relationship, but there's hope in our passage too, and it solely rests on who God is. Even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. Unfaithfulness breaks relationship, but even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful faithful. So how do we get, here's the question then, how do we move then from unfaithfulness toward faithfulness or toward renewal of the relationship that unfaithfulness has broken? I think in our text, walking through from chapter 32 to 34, we see a path to restoration and it goes like this. Here's our, here's our steps in the path towards restoration. First, one, infidelity. It's unfaithfulness. Two, Intercession. Three, repentance. And four, renewal. Infidelity, intercession, repentance, and renewal. That's the pathway we're going to walk from unfaithfulness and to the restored relationship and renewal. So let's go back to where this fell apart. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. We read this. 
Moses is up on the mountain receiving the instructions for the tabernacle that we talked about last week and receiving the the Ten Commandments that Pastor Devin preached about two weeks ago. Moses was up on the mountain for a long time. Chapter 24, verse 18 tells us that Moses entered the cloud, the presence of the Lord, and went up on the mountain and was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Chapter 32, verse 1 that we read. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together and said, Up. Essentially, get up, Aaron. We're we're tired of waiting. Make us gods who shall go before us. As an aside, just the very concept that you can make your own God is... We look at that and we're like, that seems silly to me. And yet, we'll get into that. Like, oh yeah, we do that all the time. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. The people are just impatient. They're not even completely sure what they're waiting for, but they know that it's taking far too long. They don't know where Moses is. He's been gone a month. What are we waiting for? Something has got to change. And a couple things stand out to me. Maybe they stand out to you too as we read this little section. One, make us gods that shall go before us. They're looking for a God they can follow. Because right now they're just waiting. And two, who do they credit with leading them out of Egypt? Moses. We don't know where this man who led us out of Egypt went. So what does Aaron do? Aaron tells the people, take off their gold earrings. And he takes their gold and fashions a statue of a calf out of gold and presents it to the people. Look at verse... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then before this statue that Aaron made, they offer sacrifices to the Lord. The people worship and feast and party. They celebrate before this statue of gold. Now, if there's ever another reminder in the scriptures that nothing gets past God... We see it here. God's like, hey, Moses, um, the people, your people. Did you catch that? God says, your people, Moses. Not my people, uh, your people. It's like if uh, parents in the room, you understand this when you have a particularly challenging kid and you look at your spouse and you're like, your son has an issue. Right? This is what's happening here. God says, "Uh, Moses, your people, they're doing something not so good. The language that's used here, they've turned aside, so turned away from. They've made for themselves their self-sufficiency. They worship a God of their own making. We've talked about this before in Egypt. God is saying, Moses, your people are practicing idolatry. Idolatry is turning from worship to God to the worship of something else. Idolatry is spiritual unfaithfulness. And if I can say it this way, spiritual adultery. The people of God have chosen to cast aside God's faithfulness, to ignore the promises and the commitments they've already made. If you remember Exodus chapter 24, remember the people of Israel after God has rescued them and provided for them and brought them to the mountain? They say what? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. 
They say it like three times as a people. And here, 40 days in, they're like, just kidding. That's old news. Because they have to wait, they decide we change our mind. So rather than trust God, who has been faithful, who has proven that he'll continue to be faithful, they create their own gods and join themselves to an idol. In this case, they worship a golden calf. Now, in most polytheistic, multiple gods, religions that take up multiple gods, if the current god that you're working with or sacrificing to or have an idol set up for, if that god isn't meeting your need, well, you just find another one who will. So the people of Israel turned to a god of Egypt. The calf was a common idol in Egypt. The sacred bull or the apis is one that shows up regularly. It probably looks something like this. Or that. Now, I made that like five years ago. And I keep it in my photos. One is a joke. But two for, for any of us as a tangible example. If you're a bison, like... Football. I know there's like bison football players and volleyball players and all of you in here. I'm not taking shots at you this morning. I'm taking shots at your fans. I'm taking a shot at myself. Right? Because it's a tangible example. It can be a tangible example. Again, low-hanging fruit here, right? It could be a football stadium on a Saturday or on a Sunday. It could be a boardroom on Monday. This isn't relegated to sports. If we aren't satisfied with God, we'll create idols for ourselves and worship them. John Calvin said it this way, the human heart is a factory of idols. We don't have to even go looking for them. We make our own. Israel was not satisfied with waiting. They fail to obey God's word. They fail to trust God's promises. They forget that God has been so incredibly merciful to them. He's provided food from the sky. Remember. And so they rob the glory and the worship that's due God, and they offer it to something they made themselves. In their impatience, they commit spiritual adultery. They turn aside from God to worship something else. And so as harsh as this may sound, this is my wrestle this week, and I'm going to invite you into this. Where is this true of us? Where has God been clear in his word, and yet we kind of push back on it, or maybe ignore the part, pretend God might not have said that? Where has God given promises and we fail to trust Him? And instead we take matters into our own hands. Where have we forgotten God's mercy? Where have we forgotten God's grace towards us and convinced ourselves that because we're not getting the answer we want, surely God is the one who's in the wrong and He has to answer for his lack of action, his cruelty. In what ways are our minds and hearts captured by something other than God? Verse 10, God in his righteousness tells Moses this. Moses, <clears throat> I'm going to need you to step to one side, please. Verse 10, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation out of you. The people have been unfaithful. So, Moses, we're just going to take care of them and I'm just going to start over with you. God was ready to give them what they want and just consume them. 
their spiritual infidelity was rightly being met with God's just wrath. That's a problem. And here's the turn in our text from the people's unfaithfulness to God's faithfulness. This is a Moses response to God's righteousness to say, they should be destroyed, we'll start over with you. Step two towards restoration, intercession. Look at verse 11 of chapter 32. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and he said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Now, Moses knows. He's not like, gee, I didn't know. Why would you be angry with them? He's not saying that. He gets it. Well, what he's saying is, oh, Lord, remember, these are your people. You've rescued them. He is pleading with the Lord to be merciful with these people. And he appeals to God's promises. Remember, oh, Lord, the covenant you made with Abraham, the covenant you made with with Isaac and with Jacob. That you were going to redeem them. Yes, they're stiff-necked and prideful and arrogant and dumb. But you love them, remember. And you've promised. You've promised that you're going to bring them to yourself and you're going to give them a place. You promised to multiply them and make them a nation. Moses is appealing to God's faithfulness. This is who you are, God. You are faithful. You always fulfill your promises. Don't not do that now. I think Moses probably knows if he appeals to the people's ability. I mean, they're not that bad, God. I mean, they could be worse. That's not going to really move God, right? Moses' only plea is this. Oh, God, you've promised that you'd make this people your people and you're faithful. Have mercy. So Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. Now, intercede's a fun word. To intercede means to, to go between, to intervene. Moses is intervening. He's inserting himself between God and the people. Psalm 106 says this. It's a worship song recounting the people's unfaithfulness and Moses' intercession. Psalm 106. This is a worship song Israel would have sung after the fact. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. They forgot God was going to destroy them. Had not Moses, God's chosen one, stood in the breach. Their infidelity... Their unfaithfulness was caused for destruction. But Moses stood in the breach. He stood not just between God and his people. He stood between God's wrath and the people's sin. And through the intercession of Moses, God holds back his wrath and doesn't destroy the people and instead shows them mercy. Now, it's one thing to look at Israel and go, Yeah, those guys are dumb. But if we're honest, we're no better. Just because we're not standing near a mountain doesn't mean that God doesn't see our unfaithfulness. When we are unfaithful, we too are liable to judgment. And the only way out from under the consequences or the judgment even of our own unfaithfulness is if there's an intercessor who stands in the gap on our behalf. 
We cannot reach over the divide enough to get back to where God is. Someone needs to stand in the breach. And better than Moses, we have that intercessor. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that Jesus is a better priest and a better intercessor. Verse, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 7. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They died. They didn't live forever. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's conquered death. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the furthest extreme of our need of saving, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus can save to the very edge of our need because he lives to make intercession. In his living, he stands in the breach between God's just wrath and our unfaithfulness and holds us. Jesus offers and sustains a better covenant than the one made with Moses. He's the perfect payment and the perfect priest. And he lives to make intercession for all those who draw near to God by faith. Jesus, in his intercession of us, appeals, like Moses, to God's covenant promises, to God's character, and stands in the breach between God's just wrath and your sin and my sin. And God doesn't destroy us like we deserve. He shows us mercy. Unfaithfulness breaks relationship. We have infidelity. All idolatry is spiritual adultery. Two, an intercessor stands in the gap and pleads with God to remember his promises, to show mercy. And step three on the path to seeing a renewal of relationship and to see God's faithfulness is repentance. That's the third step. See, Moses intercedes. The Lord holds back his judgment. And then we see that Moses goes down the mountain to see for himself what the heck is going on. Joshua meets him as he's coming down and tells him, there's a noise coming from the camp, Moses. I can't tell. It sounds like a battle cry or something. And Moses says, no, this is not a war cry. It's not a shout of victory or a cry of defeat. It's the sound of a party, which is worse. Verse 19, as soon as he, Moses, came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. These are the tablets of the law that God had written on by his own hand. Moses gets so mad, he throws them on the ground and shatters them into pieces. Verse 20, Moses takes the calf that they had made, burns it with fire, and grinds it down into powder, scatters it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. I just find that remarkable. Moses essentially says, this cannot stand. Melts the calf, grinds it into powder, makes the people drink it. That's the first thing. Moses confronts the people straight on. Second, Moses confronts Aaron. The people sin in the clamoring for and their worship to this golden calf. But Aaron, as the priest, didn't correct the people. He actually made the calf himself. So Moses asks Aaron a great question. 
What did these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? He essentially asks Aaron, did these people blackmail you? What do they have on you, Aaron, that would cause you to cause them to sin? Their unfaithfulness is they wanted a calf. But Aaron's was providing them an idol. Aaron made their sin worse, if I can say it that way. Notice here, the people are responsible, and in a deeper way, Aaron's responsible. Here's Aaron's response. Chapter 32, verse 22. This is in your Bibles. And Aaron said, Well, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Speaking to Moses. You know the people. You know they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who should go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. What a remarkable juke move by Aaron. Why did you do this and cause the people to sin? And he's like, I don't know what happened. You know these people, Moses? They're, they're, they're bad. Like, they're, they're terrible people. I mean, you know this, right? They complain all the time. They blame you for stuff, right, Moses? I mean, you know this. And they didn't know where you were. They asked for a god. I took their gold, put it in the fire, out came a statue. Here's what's happening here. Moses was looking for, God was looking for, repentance from Aaron. Repentance is more than an apology. It starts there. Biblical repentance is marked by a turning away from our sin and a change of our entire way of thinking. When sin is confronted, the goal of confronting sin is always renewal and restoration, which we'll get to in a minute. And the path to renewal, the door that is open to renewal, is a door of repentance. You get to renewal and you get to restoration through genuine repentance. But what did Moses get from Aaron? Not repentance. Two things we see Aaron do. Classic. Classic case. Minimizing sin. Blame shifting. There's a number of ways to avoid repentance. I think these are two pretty big ones. First, Aaron tries to downplay it. Come on, Moses. You know how these people are. I mean, these people. It's not that big of a deal. It could have been worse. And he makes an attempt to minimize the sin of the people and kind of his own part in it. Second, he says, besides, I mean, they made me do it. And even in that, I, I mean, I didn't do much. I put the gold in and out came a cow. And so here's what's so sneaky about Aaron's excuse. There's actually some truth to what Aaron says. He's not entirely wrong. The people are acting with evil intent. They are wicked. They are short-sighted. They are selfish. He's not wrong to say, man, these people are evil. They're doing evil. But that's not the issue Moses is pressing on. Rather than push back and correct the evil of the people, Aaron gave in to the same temptation. And in trying to shift the blame to others, he refuses to admit that he has any part or any sin in the process. He even presses his excuses further, saying, you know, that darn fire, that makes gold into cows. The fire did it. Right? To quote Pastor Tony Merida, whether you admit your sin or not, you remain accountable for it. We need to own it and repent of it. 
That's what Aaron was failing to, to grasp in this moment. Out of fear, out of unbelief, we don't know. See, there are many situations where you and I might be tempted, where we don't respond like we should. None of us is claiming some kind of sinless perfection here. We get pressured or even cornered. Sometimes others' sin against us just blows us up and catches us off guard. But even if there are a hundred contributing factors, the requirement to walk in righteousness before God and one another is to own our sin. And Aaron doesn't do that. Proverbs 28 tells us that the one who conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. That's Proverbs. Old covenant wisdom. But the same is true for us as new covenant people. I think the gospel of Jesus is the answer and the fulfillment to Proverbs 28.13. If we confess and renounce, that is, turn away from, you will find mercy. It's a promise. Not all Proverbs are promises. This one is in Christ. We are called to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus, who is the mercy of God. And not just once. Not just one time to get out of Egypt. Martin Luther, his first of his 95 theses, which sparked the renewal of the Reformation in the church, says this. Thesis number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So if the path toward renewal, toward restoration, comes through repentance, we have to ask ourselves this follow-up question. Where do we avoid repentance? And what does it look like to pursue repentance? Do we tend to minimize sin or shift blame to circumstances or to others? Or do we humbly own our own brokenness so that we can move toward God and toward one another? Now as this section closes, verses 25 through 29 of chapter 32, God deals with those who were committed to adultery. Verse 26 of chapter 32, you can read it. Moses invites those committed to the Lord to come to him. All those who are committed to the Lord, come to me. Not everyone shows up. And those committed to the Lord, Moses says, take your swords, go back to your tribes. And those who are committed to idolatry are to be struck down with the sword. 3,000 men were struck down with the sword. Now, this might seem extreme, and this is not a warrant for like taking uh, your sword or your bat out to idol worshipers after church today. Do not do that. But leaving idol worshipers in the land with God's people at this point in time would threaten generations of covenant people. God's people were his people and those who weren't his people were cut off. As an aside, I think this just shows how much better the new covenant is compared to the old. That we aren't cut off right away. The fact that you're breathing right now, despite the fact that your heart and my heart is often unfaithful and wandering... Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? Despite that fact, you haven't been struck down this morning, neither have I. So even now, with every breath in, God is showing mercy. So if we are breathing, it's by God's mercy. And with every breath out, we are invited to repent. 
It's an invitation to say, you're right, God, I need you. With every expulsion of breath. To put aside our idols and to worship the living God. Unfaithfulness breaks, breaks relationship. Intercession is needed to stand between a holy God and sinful people. Sin is addressed and there's a call to repentance. And all of this leads toward renewal. That's the hope we see even here in Exodus. Chapter 32, the Lord disciplines his people with a plague. But he commands Moses to lead the people away from the base of the mountain up toward the land of promise. Except, chapter 33, verse 3, God adds a wrinkle. You can go up. You should go up, Moses. Take the people up. But I'm not going to go with you. Because the people are stiff-necked. They're stubborn. They're not humble. Notice here, God calls them the people. Take the people. Not my people. Take the people. The people you, Moses, have brought out of the land of Egypt. Verse 4, when the people heard this disaster, this disastrous word, they mourned. Why? Because those who remained realized that they had a need that they could not meet themselves. They recognized if we are by ourselves, we are lost. There's a few things that they realized needs they could not meet. One, they were desperate for God's presence. Without it, they knew they would be lost. They knew that their enemies would devour them. They have tasted of God's blessings, but have neglected the blesser. They've accepted his gifts, but have rejected the giver. And here God says, okay, you can go on your own. And to the people's credit, I mean, we rag on Israel a lot. To their credit, they recognize that his presence is more important than his perks. And they wail and mourn and plead with God to not leave them. They need his presence. They can't manufacture that too. There's a privilege that they have in being near him. Chapter 32, verse 7, we learn about the tent of meeting. This isn't the tabernacle. The tabernacle is not built yet that we talked about last week. This tent where Moses met with God was set up right outside the camp. It was the place where the presence of God would descend and God would meet with Moses. So if God was not with them, then they would not have the privilege of communion that came through Moses. How were they to hear from God and talk to God? privilege of communion was lost and they needed it. Third, they lost their sense of purpose. In verse 12, Moses essentially tells him, we don't have the resources to go where you're sending us. So if your purpose was to make us a people and establish us in a place, we can't do that on our own. We are now worthless as a people. We will fail in fulfilling that purpose that you had for us and we will be lost in the wilderness. And this is what the Lord says. When Moses pleads, this very thing, Moses, that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Yahweh somehow tucks Moses into the cleft of a rock. This is that section where the glory of the Lord passes by Moses. And the Lord lifts his hand that he'd been covering Moses with. So that Moses just gets a glimpse of the backside of God. God doesn't have sides. He's altogether other. But this is how it's described to us. The residual glory of God. 
that Moses can just barely comprehend and not be obliterated. Moses sees it. Because the sheer glory of God would melt your face. So God tucks Moses into a rock and says, okay, I will show you the shadow of my glory, essentially. And God makes new tablets. Well, Moses brings tablets up. God writes on them for the ones that were broken. And God renews the covenant that he made with Moses on behalf of the people of Israel. Look at verse 34. Starting in verse, excuse me, chapter 34, starting in verse 6. This is renewal. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. He's declaring, this is who I am. I'm restarting this relationship. Here's what it looks like. I'm a God merciful and gracious. I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I am keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. O Lord, Moses says, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. I know I am stubborn, God. I know we are stiff-necked. We should all use that phrase, by the way, stiff-necked. It's a good one. I know we are stubborn and selfish and prideful. Would you be merciful and be near us, O God? I don't know about you, that's a pretty good prayer. I think I could use that one regularly. And the Lord renewed the covenant with Israel through Moses, and that from that day forward, Moses' face radiated with the glory of the Lord. So much so that he needed to wear a veil over his face because it freaked the people out. But Moses longed to see the glory of God. The people longed for renewal. They longed for God's presence. They longed for the privilege to commune with Him. They longed to fulfill God's purposes for them. Do we long for renewal? Do we long to see God's glory, or have we seen enough? The writer of Hebrews says this. Hebrews chapter 1. This is where we'll close. Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. That's inheritance language. Through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and Jesus invites us to repent. He he invites us to put down our idols, to confess our spiritual infidelity. He offers himself as the substitute. He is the one who's interceding, who's praying for us before the Father. He invites us and empowers us by the Spirit to walk in repentance. And he renews us as we are in him as the guarantor of a new and better covenant. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to see that Jesus died as your substitute for your idolatry so that you could be reconciled to God. 
The invitation is to turn from your idols and believe in the living God. And you can do that today. For my brothers and sisters in the room, you and I need to see our idols for what they are. Spiritual adultery. And in seeing them for what they are, not try to minimize sin or shift blame, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. To set our minds and our hopes squarely on Jesus, remembering that in Christ we are made new. That we were once dead, but now we are alive to Him. So we don't need to be ashamed of our sin and try to cover it up. But rather we can admit it and confess it and claim it. Yes, that is mine. And it is paid for. Knowing that Christ has killed it. And then all of our lives, every ounce of our lives is offered back to God in right worship to Him. Friends, our unfaithfulness breaks our relationship with God. But even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. Should we pray? Father, we thank you that even though we are slow and stubborn, you are overwhelming in mercy. That you are a God of steadfast love, loyal, loving kindness, and lasting love and mercy. As we come to the table, we get a a glimpse of the mercy of God given to us as your justice was poured out on Jesus. We remember in the bread and the cup the substitution, the payment for our sin. Because you, Jesus, did not stay dead, we can take hold of the life we have in you. I pray by your Spirit we would put to death all the lesser idols that we fashion for ourselves. And that you'd continue to work renewal and healing in us that we might walk together and have fellowship with one another. So that you might receive glory in your mercy and in your justice. And that we might have joy in the fellowship you give us. Bless us now. Speak to us as we come to your table. Amen.